Turn with me again to Luke chapter 18. We began three weeks ago uh, back into our journeys through the book of Luke. And this morning we come to Luke 18, verses 15 through 17. Luke 18, 15 through 17. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Father, I pray that we would come to your word like children come to their parents this morning, trusting that you mean what you say, that you'll do what you say, that you are good, that you want what's good for us. So help us to hear what you say to us and to believe it and to put it into practice. Help us to honor your son and benefit from his mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm beginning to look at these middle uh, verses of Luke 18 as a kind of theater of the absurd. Because in back-to-back weeks now, we've come across some of the most ridiculous characters in the New Testament, I think you'll agree. Last week in verses 11 and 12, we saw this man with all manner of pride and pomp standing in the temple of God and praying to himself. And we could almost hear the religious self-importance in his verse, in his voice as he prayed there, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Ridiculous. And now this morning, as though not to be outdone, we find Jesus' very own disciples shooing away a group of parents who simply want to come and bring their children to Jesus and have him pray for them and touch them. And so I tell you, we find ourselves in the theater of the absurd. The actions of these disciples this morning could not appear more silly if they were wearing clown suits. We have to ask ourselves, what were Matthew and James and Peter and the others thinking? Did they work for the TSA? Was it that big a deal to allow a few young parents and their little ones through security and into the presence of Jesus? What's going on here? If Jesus could touch lepers, and if Jesus could befriend prostitutes, then surely he would have time for these little believing families, right? How could the disciples ever have thought otherwise? In fact, hadn't Jesus had time for them? when they were sitting in their shady tax booths or when they were standing by the seashore mending their nets and smelling like fish guts? Hadn't he had time for them? So how foolish for these men to think that Jesus would have now little or no time for another group of supposed small-timers. It's easy to ask those kind of questions standing here in this pulpit or sitting in these pews, right? It's easy to look at the disciples and say, "What? what in the world? But as we said a week ago, we have to be careful lest we find ourselves wearing the same clown suits as the Pharisee or today as these disciples. Surely we'd be more subtle about it. Surely we wouldn't actually say what these disciples seem to have been saying, namely, Jesus doesn't have time for a bunch of squirrely little kids. No, we wouldn't say that. We wouldn't shoo the children away with a broomstick, would we? But if we're not careful, we may fall foul of Jesus' teaching nonetheless. Because as a church or as parents or as grandparents, we may, if we do not take care, end up doing things that would either keep little ones away from the Lord or we may end up doing or not doing things that would encourage them to come. 
And so it's good from time to time to remind ourselves that the least of these and the littlest among us are important to the Lord and to remind ourselves what our duties are to them and to remind ourselves of what our duties are through them to the Lord himself. And what's our duty, according to this passage, toward the little ones? Well, simply that we permit the children to come to Jesus and that we do not hinder them. So our duty, like the parents in verse 15, is to bring the smallest among us before the Lord in prayer when they're still small, seeking his blessing on their lives and not to think even for a moment that Jesus has bigger fish to fry. That's the obvious thing here in Luke 18, isn't it? We are, as parents and as a church, to bring the children before the Lord, seeking his blessing, to see the importance of children to the Lord and not to set them to one side or forget about them in the midst of all of our important grown-up religious activities. And we'll come back to that duty of bringing the children before the Lord, seeking his blessing as we go along. But then I think you'll also agree that it's not a stretch to say that this passage also, by way of application, calls on us to pray and to worship and to teach and to work and to love and to model so that our children, as they grow older, would have incentive and opportunity to bring themselves to the Lord. Right? It's not just that we bring them to the Lord in prayer, but if we're going to permit the children to come to Jesus, we have to live and do in such a way that they will want to come to him themselves, that they will want to commit themselves to him, that they will want to seek his blessing for themselves as they grow older. In other words, though the exhortation here to permit the children to come to Jesus is set in a situation where their mothers and fathers were actually the ones bringing them, Surely Jesus intends that we apply verse 16 also to the time when those children need to come to Jesus for themselves on their own. Surely the exhortation to permit the children to come is not simply about children receiving Jesus' blessings as babies, verse 15, but also about them receiving the blessing of salvation and life in Christ as they grow older and so we'll make plenty of applications along those lines as well permit the children to come to me jesus said that's our calling as parents as grandparents as great grandparents some of us and as a church family and it's a daunting task isn't it and yet it's a glorious task as well and i hope that you'll see it as that this morning and to help you see it i want to mention five points of application from these three verses five ways that these verses ought to make sense to us and ought to make a difference in our lives. The first is simply a word to children. So children, all of you children, you're all right here, right in front of me. I want you to pay special attention right now. I want to say something especially to you kids. And I want you to know most of what the Lord has to say this morning is meant for your parents and for the rest of us who are supposed to be taking care of you who are supposed to be permitting you to come to Jesus and helping you to come to Jesus and even encouraging you to come to Jesus. Most of that is for us. But children, the fact that Jesus wants the rest of us to permit you to come to Jesus means, doesn't it, that he wants you to come to Jesus. And so there is something for you children here. He wants you to come yourself looking for his blessing and trusting him. He wants you, children, to repent of your sins and to put your faith in Jesus for forgiveness and to trust him for eternal life. And he wants you, children, to follow him and serve him and love him all of your days. And I need to tell you something else, children. 
there are lots of things that your parents can do for you, right? They feed you. They buy things for you. They provide a warm home for you. They take care of you in all sorts of ways. But there's one thing your parents can't do for you. And that's that they cannot believe in Jesus for you. They cannot follow Jesus for you. You have to do that yourself. They can encourage you. They are supposed to permit you. But they cannot do that for you. You have to decide for Jesus yourself. And you need to. And I think your parents have told you that you need to. You need to trust in Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. There's no other way for you to know God, children. There's no other way for you to serve God or to please God or to be in heaven with God except to come to Jesus and to trust him as your Savior and as your Lord. And so I want all of you children and parents to go home today and talk about these things from the Bible about what it means, children, for you to come to Jesus and why you need to come to Jesus and how you may come to Jesus. So would you talk to your parents about that today and then would you all pray to the Lord that he would help you, children, to come to Jesus? Jesus loves you. Jesus came to the earth and died for our sins, didn't he? And he rose from the dead so that he's alive today in heaven and his arms are open wide to all who will come to him, no matter how small you are. And so you must come to him, children and adults. Even today, you must come to him. And I hope that you will. I hope you will. So this passage does have a word for you children. But it also, secondly, has a word regarding the sanctity of human life that we've been thinking about already. Now, it's clear that this passage is about bringing children to Jesus for spiritual blessing, right? That's, that's obvious, In other words, this passage is not directly about abortion or the sanctity of life. And we would all agree, I think, that as important it is to save human lives, it's even more paramount to save human souls. So God gets great glory when children are rescued from abortion, but he gets even greater glory when they or their parents are rescued from their sins and brought to Jesus. And therefore, I realize that to pause now in the middle of this passage and to talk about sanctity of human life is a little bit of an aside. But I want to show you that in the culture that we live in, it's an important aside and a vital aside. That is, in the culture that we live in, we must remind ourselves from time to time that mothers and fathers will never bring their children to the Lord if they are not first encouraged and helped to bring them into the world. And little children will never themselves come to the Lord if they are not first permitted to come into the world. So an important first step in permitting the children to come to Jesus is that we help and encourage their parents and our culture and our government to permit them to be born. Now, we could, of course, spend the rest of the day mulling over ways in which we might do that, ways that we can promote the sanctity of life and rescue the unborn ways in which we can permit the children to be born so that they might someday permitted, be permitted to be born again. But let me just simply remind you of a few of them quickly. Some bullet points along these lines. How do you permit the children to be born so that they might later be permitted to come to Jesus? Well, one thing you can do is just to use your vote to elect candidates who will permit the children to be born. You can also, secondly, involve yourselves in more hands-on social or political activism that works to permit the children to be born. You can support pregnancy care of Cincinnati, either financially or with your prayers or as a volunteer 
and you already heard about this morning, Carolyn, I'm sure, could tell you more about the opportunities or you can contact them and find out about them yourself. You can befriend a young woman at work or school or in your family who finds herself in an unexpected pregnancy and pour God's grace on her so that you might perhaps persuade her of the beauty of selecting life. You can make Mark 9.29 your watchword in the defense of the unborn, reminding yourselves that some children perhaps may never come out of their mother's womb by anything but prayer and fasting, perhaps your prayer and your fasting for them. And you can provide a healthy alternative to abortion by being willing to adopt a child whose biological parents are unable to care for him or her but unwilling to abort. And let me say a word, an additional word about adoption. I think it's so important. Adopting a child is a triple blessing. It's a triple blessing because not only are you saving the child's life so that it might someday come to Jesus, but you are also bringing that child into a Christian home so that he or she has every opportunity to come to Jesus. And then not only that, but thirdly, the very adoption itself will serve as a picture for the rest of that child's days of what the Lord does for spiritual orphans, of how in Christ he adopts us into his family and calls us not just his servants, but his sons and his daughters. And that lifelong picture that you can provide for a child will be all the more incentive for that little adopted boy or girl to someday come to Jesus for him or herself. However you do it, if you love the Lord, surely there's room in your heart to do something for the unborn and for their parents. Surely you will want to permit the children to come into the world so that someday they would be permitted to come, all the more importantly, to the Lord. So that's the second thing. There's a word for children. There's a word regarding the sanctity of human life. Thirdly, verses 15 through 17 here provide a word to the church. A word to the church. Now, we may begin mulling over what it means to permit the children to come to Jesus and not to hinder them. And immediately our thoughts, probably most of us, start turning towards parenting and towards the home. And that's not off target for our, t- our thoughts to turn there. But before we get there, let, re- re- let me remind you of the context of the passage that's before us. And let me do that by asking you, to whom was Jesus speaking as he said those famous words, permit the children to come to me? Who did he say that to? Well, you'll notice he wasn't actually speaking to their moms and dads, was he? Although what he says surely applies to moms and dads, as we'll see. But in the immediacy of the moment, in the immediate context of these three verses, Jesus wasn't speaking to parents. He was speaking to his disciples, to his followers, who had the opportunity either to help these parents bring their children to the Lord or to hinder them from doing so. He's speaking to his followers. And so the direct applications of this passage and of Jesus' words in verse 16 are not merely made to parents, but to all followers of Jesus who have the opportunity to help or to hinder parents and children from coming to the Lord. In other words, this passage has something to say to the church at large whether you're a child or a parent or a grandparent or whether you've never had children. Namely, what it says is that we mustn't be like the disciples. 
We mustn't be so caught up in our own grown-up priorities and activities that we neglect the smallest among us. And we certainly mustn't do church in such a way that hinders children from coming to the Lord and knowing his word and understanding his love for them. Or just to put it positively, every local church ought to be a place where children are loved and welcomed with open arms and consistently pointed to the Savior. And some churches do that in one way and some another. Some have more personnel and resources, some have less. Some have more children and some have less. So the point is not to suggest that every church ought to have an immense children's program or a snazzy children's program. In fact, sometimes the snazziness can be more of a hindrance than a help because parents and children come for the cool instead of coming for the Christ. So that's not the point that we have to figure out some big machinery to put in place for the children. The point, rather, is that every church and every Christian ought, in ways that fit their own context and community and ability, to love children and to be prepared at every turn to point them heavenward. And let me give you a few reminders of how probably that ought to look here at Pleasant Ridge. It means, first of all, that none of us should allow ourselves to be cranky when the little ones gurgle or cry out or even throw the occasional fit during the worship service. Can that be distracting? Absolutely, especially when it's your own children. Especially when it's your own children and you're standing here and they're over there and you can't do anything about it. So I know that it can be distracting, but how will these children ever learn to listen to the word of God? How will they ever learn to sing his praises in the congregation of his people if we don't allow for some growing pains on the front edge of the learning curve? So rather than being bent out of shape by the occasional crying baby or squirming three-year-old, those brief distractions really ought to give us cause to thank God that he's giving us young families and children to nurture and to grow in the Lord. Also, permitting the children to come to Jesus and not being a hindrance to them as a church means that preachers need to preach in such a way that the little ones can understand at least on a basic level and occasionally perhaps to address them directly from the pulpit, as I tried to do today. I'm sure that I need continual improvement in these areas. So I just ask you to pray for me that I will preach so that even the children can understand and will want to listen. And I want you to pray, too, that I would be the kind of person to whom they'll want to listen, that they will understand and clearly see that their pastor loves them. That's the second thing. Another way... um, that we can apply this to ourselves as a church is very obviously to those of us who work directly with the children, whether it's in Sunday school or mission friends or in the nursery. Those of you who teach and those of you who work the nursery, ask yourself, when the parents bring or attempt to bring their children to Jesus by bringing them to church and bringing them to my classroom, Are the orderliness of my classroom and the cheerfulness of my attitude and the preparedness of my lessons and the earliness of my arrival sending a message to these parents that we really want their children to come? Or does a sloppy classroom and a crabby countenance and a hastily thrown together lesson and a last minute arrival actually hinder parents and their children from coming or from coming back the second time? 
We all need to think about these things. People love their children more than they love anything else in the world. And there are a few things that would cause a family to stop visiting a church or just to give up on coming to Sunday school than to feel that their children are not being cared for or taught well or treated with gentleness and love. So I just plead with you teachers and nursery workers, get yourself here in plenty of time so that you're waiting when the parents and the children arrive. Have your materials and your lesson ready before you get here or get here extra early so that you will be well prepared when you need to be in the classroom. Keep your room and your personal appearance tidy. And most of all, when you come, leave your frowns and your frustrations and your frazzle at home. If you're working with the kids, get yourself up extra early on Sunday so that you can be with God and you can sort through your own issues in advance and arrive at church with a smile on your face and a love in your heart for the kids. And teachers, remember that we are bringing the children to Jesus. To Jesus. In other words, no matter what the lesson may be, show them how it bears on their relationship to God's Son. Show them how it encourages them to trust in God's Son. For instance, the story of Jonah is not just an adventure story about a fish and a prophet, is it? It's a story about how God saves people. And it's a story that foreshadows the resurrection of Jesus. Just as Jonah was in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be. Or if you're teaching the Ten Commandments, remind them the Ten Commandments are not just rules to live by. They're actually rules that none of us has lived by. And they're rules, therefore, that show us our need for the Savior. So permit the children to come, not just to interesting Bible stories and good moral teachings, but through those stories and through those teachings to come to Jesus. I'm sure there are other things that could be said along these lines about us as a church. There are other ways that we as a group should constantly be checking and double-checking to make sure that we're creating an atmosphere that permits and even encourages children to come to Christ. But let me just sum it up simply by saying that if each one of us has a love for Christ and a love for kids, we'll figure out the applications. We'll be able to make this work. We will permit the little ones whom we love to come to the eternal one whom we love even more. Let's make sure that we all do that. Now, fourthly, let me give you the application that I advertised last week, namely that we find in these verses a word to parents. This is the thing perhaps that you're expecting. This is the thing that we're going to spend the most time on. This is the thing, as we'll see in a moment, that is perhaps the most important application for us. It's for parents, for grandparents, and if you're not a parent or a grandparent, this is information that will give you a long list of things to pray for those of us who are. So there's a word to parents, and I want you to notice it was, after all, the parents who brought their children to Jesus in verse 15, right? They were bringing their babies, we're told. So the parents were bringing the children, and that's a lesson to us in and of itself. Here we have parents who are taking responsibility for the spiritual well-being of their children, and that's always the way it's supposed to work. It's always the parents who should take the initiative and the primary responsibility for their children's spiritual well-being. Now, no doubt, the disciples of Jesus in any era and in this passage ought to be a help and not a hindrance to those parents. But the rest of Jesus' followers can do very little parents by way of help or by way of hindrance if the parents don't actually take the initiative to bring the children to Jesus in the first place. 
In other words, the disciples here would never have been a hindrance to these parents if the parents just had not cared enough to bring their children to Jesus. But neither could they have ever been a help. And neither can any church or any people anywhere if the parents don't take the first responsibility to say, my children's spiritual welfare is my job. I have to bring them to Jesus, and Lord, help me by bringing all these other people along to give me assistance. So that's the first thing that needs to be said. You, if you are a parent, have the primary responsibility for your children's welfare. And so you just have to dive in, and you have to get your feet wet, and you have to get busy and do these things that we're going to say. It's one of the most solemn responsibilities that any of us will ever be given, to raise children who have eternal souls. And yet, if we will do it, then it will prove one of the most joyful and rewarding experiences. And so you mustn't fail, parents, to do everything in your power to bring your own children to the Lord. Many of us are often saying to ourselves, you know, I really hope God will give me an opportunity to share the gospel. I hope that God will bring someone across my path that I can bring to Jesus. And that's a good thing to hope for, a good thing to pray for, but the answer or at least part of the answer to that prayer may be lying in the crib down the hall from you. The answer to your prayer may have peanut butter slathered all down the front of his shirt today by about 1 o'clock, right? In other words, your kids may be the answer to your prayers, or at least part of the answer. Indeed, they should be the first people that you think of when you start to pray and hope that you'll be able to share the good news and lead someone to Christ. Your kids... And the first way we ought to do that, the first way to bring our children to Jesus is just the way these young parents did it in verse 15, isn't it? Of course, we cannot physically bring them to Jesus while we live in this world. We cannot ask him to physically touch them with his own fingertips. But we can bring our children to Jesus like these parents, seeking his blessing upon them in prayer. And that's the thing. We ought to, just like these parents, from the time our children are very small, bring our children to the Lord to be blessed. We ought to bring them before the Lord in prayer. Now, we ought to bring them to be prayed over and dedicated to the Lord in the company of God's people, as we have occasion to do from time to time. But that's just the beginning, isn't it? Mom and Dad, you ought to be dedicating your child to the Lord in prayer every day. And after all, if we are not praying for our children... And what are we praying for? We're not praying for the very most precious earthly gift that God has laid into our hands to care for. What are we praying for? So bring your children before the Lord in prayer, parents. And grandparents, too. Especially if mom and dad are not doing this themselves. Pray for their souls. Pray that God would break sin habits that you can already begin to see in their lives before they can even talk. Pray over them when they're sick. In every situation, bring your children before the Lord in prayer so that he might, verse 15, touch them. So that's the first practical application. That's the obvious thing in verse 15. We ought ourselves to be bringing our children before the Lord in prayer. But as we said at the beginning, surely this passage also enjoins us to teach them and encourage them and model Christianity before them in such a way that they themselves will someday, someday come before the Lord in prayer on their own. That they will someday make their parents' faith their own. That they will someday seek the Lord's touch in their life for themselves. So we have to teach and live and love in such a way that we are a help and not a hindrance to our children eventually coming to Christ on their own. 
And along these lines, I want to give you some practical hints at how you might do that. And let me say again that in many instances, these practical hints will have to be taken up and applied by grandparents as well when the parents aren't doing it. So how can you encourage your children or your grandchildren to come to Christ themselves? Well, first, as we just said, you should pray for them. Pray that they'll come to Christ. If you don't do that, then most everything else you're doing will be done in your own power and will avail very little. So pray for them. But then second, you should permit and even encourage your, encourage your children to come to Jesus simply by bringing them to church. That almost sounds too easy, doesn't it? So bring them to church. And yet, we all know that, and yet, every time that we ourselves decide that we cannot make it, the children miss an opportunity to be drawn to Christ as well. I wonder if thinking of that might help some of us. Surely we want our children to be saved, right? We want our children to come to Christ. And surely we believe that every time we walk through these doors, they get to hear the good news, and there's an opportunity for them to be saved, for them to be brought to Christ. And therefore, every time that we as parents decide to slough off is an opportunity not just missed for us, but missed for our children who need the Lord. And they'll only get so many chances to hear his word. And so we must make the effort to get them here to missions in memory at 9, to Sunday school at 10, to worship at 11. Telling ourselves every week, who knows which Sunday may be the day that God will open their hearts and open the gates of paradise to them. And let me say this as well. Don't just bring them to church. Allow them to see that you yourself are glad to be there. In other words, what does it say to a child if they come with you to church and sit next to you in the pew and see that you are just as eager for the sermon to end as they are? Or if you mumble through the hymns, or if you nod off during the service, what does that say? But on the other hand, what does it say if your children see you eagerly following along with the sermon and looking up the passages as we go along? What does it say to them if they hear you belting out the hymns with vigor, clearly excited to be here? This is why we encourage your little ones to come into the service as early as age three. We realize that they're not going to get the whole sermon. That's why I put the children's thing in the front. They're not listening to me more, but they ought We realize that there are some parts of the service that are going to be tedious to them because they're small, but we believe that there's great long-term benefit in allowing them to observe week after week after week that mom and dad clearly do not find the service tedious. Put it to you like this. Boys usually grow up cheering for the same football teams that they watch their dads root for in front of the televisions all their lives, right? It's not a good sign for my boys, but that's the way it works. <laughs> Girls usually grow up enjoying the same kind of movies or the same kind of scrapbooking or the same kind of crafts or the same kind of cooking as they've observed their moms be excited over. And children who week after week after week see that their parents are clearly excited about God usually grow up excited about the same thing. So that's the second thing. Bring your children to church and let them see that you are glad to be there as well. But then thirdly, permit and even encourage your children to come to Jesus by worshiping together at home. At home. Every night is an opportunity, mom and dad, for you to open the Bible for your children and read a short passage of scripture to them and then talk for a few minutes about what it says and how it applies and to probe them with questions to see if they understood and then to lead the family in prayer 
and then to sing a hymn together. And that 15 minutes a day will go farther, much farther than you can ever imagine. We use this illustration Wednesday, and I want to bring it to you again today. The flowers of faith and the fruit of the Spirit usually grow best not where there are just the occasional heavy rains of church attendance, but where there is the gentle rain of Bible truth nearly every day. Let me say that again. The flowers of faith and the fruit of the Spirit that we want to see in our children's lives and our own lives usually grow best not where there are merely the occasional heavy rains of Sunday and Wednesday church attendance, but where there is the gentle rain of Bible truth coming down upon the heart nearly every day. Now, don't misunderstand. I've just finished telling you that your children need the heavy rains of Sunday school and corporate worship and so on. They need those times where they're in and around God's word for two solid hours. But they also need those daily 15-minute showers as well. In fact, you all know it happens to ground that only occasionally gets a heavy downpour but is dry and parched the rest of the time, don't you? When that downpour comes, most of the water actually washes right off the hard ground and into the sewer drains. And so it will be with your children. If the ground of their hearts is not softened by regular attention to God's word, then when they come on Sundays, they will not soak in nearly as much as they ought. And remember, parents, as I was reminding the teachers a few minutes ago, when you are reading the Bible together as a family, the goal is not simply to bring your children a knowledge of history or of doctrine, as important as those things are. Your goal is to bring them through the history and through the doctrine to Jesus. Permit the children to come to me, he says. So you have to think hard each night when you open the passage before you about how this will help them understand Jesus or see their need for Jesus or trust Jesus. So now I've gone on a long time on these first three applications. Attention to prayer, to corporate worship, and to family worship in your home. So let me give you the next several much more quickly. Fourth, I urge you to permit and even encourage your children to come to Jesus by using a biblical catechism. You say, what is a catechism? A catechism is simply a tool that enables children to learn the basic doctrines of the Bible and the basic way of salvation in a question and answer memorization format. You ask the question, and they start to learn to memorize the answer so that by the time you go through the whole thing, they've memorized all the major doctrines of the Bible. Many of you have used the little yellow booklet, my first book of questions and answers, and you've had great success with it if you've stuck with it. And there are copies of it out in the tract case in the foyer, and I'd encourage every parent here who has small children to get that and to use it. Fifth, Permit and even encourage your children to come to Jesus by remembering to talk with your children about the Lord. Deuteronomy 6-7, when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Not just at the set times, family worship, Sunday morning, Wednesday night, but in all occasions. So when you have occasion to discipline the children or when you have an instance where they are disappointed about something, or when there needs to be prayer for some need in the family, or simply when you pray before a family meal, or when you see the homeless man at the bottom of the interstate exit. All of those are opportunities to say to your children, now let's talk about what God says about this. Let's talk about how this applies, how God's word applies in this situation. Let's think about what God is like in light of what's going on right now in front of us. 
So don't merely read the Bible to the children. Do that. But then, as you do life, talk with them about the implications of the Bible and of the gospel. Sixth, permit and encourage your children to come to Jesus by occasionally asking them direct questions about the state of their souls. In other words, don't just kind of talk about the Bible in general, but sometimes to say to them, do you believe in Jesus? Now, if the catechism question, for instance, deals with what it means to repent of your sins, you might say to your children after you've talked about the question, have you repented of your sins? Or if the sermon at church was about heaven, you might say in the car on the way home, now, can you tell me again, how does a person get to heaven? Or when the child sins and you have to talk to them and correct them, that's a perfect chance to say, now, are you willing to repent of that sin before the Lord and trust Jesus to forgive it? See, there are these points where you can turn to them directly and preach the gospel to them. I'm not suggesting that at every turn throughout the day, you hound your child about whether or not they're saved. I'm just saying that there are occasions where you ought to probe their hearts and help them see where they are with the Lord, to help them see if they belong to Christ. And then there's the whole issue of personal Bible reading, seventh. When your children become old enough and proficient enough in reading, you probably ought to permit and encourage them to come to Jesus by helping them start reading the Bible for themselves. Not as a replacement for family worship, but in addition to, just like hopefully you read the Bible for yourself. Your, your children need to be started on that, on that road as they get old enough to read. And so passages that, that tell stories like the Gospels or the book of Acts or Genesis or Exodus, those are great places for children to get started. Even just reading a chapter or a half a chapter a day and get them in the habit of turning to God on their own. And then there's an eighth and final thing that every parent needs to do in order to permit and encourage his or her children to come to Jesus. And that's namely that we must model real Christianity before them. If you want your children to come to Christ, they need to see Christ in you. And I suppose at this point I could go on for a while about how we all ought to behave and and how we ought to have standards and ethics and be Christ-like in those ways. And I do say that. If you call yourself a Christian and bear no growing resemblance to Christ, then your children are going to be very confused. But yet there's more, I think, to modeling real Christianity before our children than simply doing the right things. And to help you understand that, let me ask you this question. What is it at the most basic level that makes us Christians? The answer is not our ethics or our morals or even how well we become like Jesus, necessary as all those things are to true Christianity. But at root level, we are Christians because we have come to rely, as we were saying last week, on a righteousness that's not our own. We are Christians because we have realized that we're not actually all that moral at all and that we desperately need Christ. That's what makes us Christians. And so, parents, I say to you with all the earnestness that I can say to you, your children need to see that you are desperate for Christ. They don't need parents who never make mistakes. They don't need parents whom they are led to believe hung the moon spiritually. What they need is to have parents who will admit their neediness and admit their sin and admit how bad they need Christ. 
They need to see you, dads, going back to mom and telling her you're sorry for how you lost your temper. And they need to see you, moms, going back to dad and asking him for forgiveness for your sharp tongue. And they need to see both of you humbling yourselves and asking their forgiveness when you sin against them. And most of all, they need to see their parents, both of them, seeking the Lord's forgiveness together when the blow-ups or the fallouts happen. And they need to be invited to come and be a part of that seeking the Lord's help and forgiveness themselves. To put it most simply, one of the best ways to encourage your children to come to Jesus in repentance and in faith is to allow them to see that you yourself are constantly having to do that as well. That's what it means to be a Christian. Show them what it means not to be a Pharisee, but to be a Christian. Now finally, Luke 18, 15 through 17 contains a word to all people everywhere. There's a word about the sanctity of life. There's a word to children. There's a word to parents. There's a word to the church. But there's a word in this passage to all people everywhere. And I want you to notice then what Jesus says and does not say concerning children in the second half of verse 16. What does he say? Permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them. Why? For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And the words such as are so important there. Jesus does not say that the kingdom of heaven belongs simply to children, as though heaven were only a children's place or as though uh, people go to heaven simply because they're under a certain age. That's not what he says. He doesn't say that heaven belongs simply to children. He says heaven belongs to people no matter what their age is who are such as children. Heaven belongs to people who are like children. And then he explains that further in verse 17, doesn't he? In order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to be like a child. And whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. So this passage isn't just about children, is it? It's about whoever, verse 17. Whoever will humble him or herself and become like a child. So this passage is for men and women and boys and girls everywhere. So long as those men and women and boys and girls are willing to be childlike before the Lord. And what does Jesus mean when he says that we need to receive God's kingdom like a child? Well, I think he means simply that we need to trust God the way children trust their parents. We need to trust God the way children instinctively trust their parents. And don't children do well at that? Children never wonder if mom and dad are going to feed them. They never wonder if mom and dad are going to pick them up at school. They never wonder if mom and dad are going to provide a place to stay. They don't go, you know, when I come home from school today, maybe the doors are going to be locked and they'll have moved. That never occurs to them, right? They never wonder when you tell them something if you're telling them the truth. Even when children have rotten parents, it is amazing how they love and trust their parents, isn't it? And how they believe everything that their parents say, whether their parents are actually trustworthy or not. It's just normal for children. It's instinctive for children to trust their parents without question. At least if we as parents are doing even a quarter of what we ought to be doing, that is normal and that is instinctive for them. And so what Jesus is saying in this passage very simply is that we can learn a lot from watching children and how they instinctively trust their parents. We can see in them, he's saying, how we ought to be with our Heavenly Father. We simply ought to entrust Him. 
We ought to take what he says at face value. We ought to never wonder if he'll really provide for us, if he'll really do what he says he'll do, or if we'll come to him in prayer one day and find a sign that says shop closed, move to another location. No. We ought never to wonder if we will wake up one day and find that God has left us. That's what he's saying. Be like a child with your father. But let me ask you, are you, are you like that with God? Do you simply believe that God's going to take care of you and be there for you and forgive you no matter how bad things get and no matter how much you've messed up? Do you, like a child, simply accept at face value what God says? Things like, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Things like, if you, being evil, know how to give what's good to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give what's good to you? Do you just accept that stuff at face value? And do you, like a child, accept that your father's gifts are really gifts and never have a thought of paying him back? Your children never, when you give them something, say, now how much do I owe you for that, right? Sometimes you might wish that they would, but that's not what they do, right? They just know, mom and dad want to give me stuff. And they never even, it never even occurs to them that they would ever have to pay it back. They know it's a gift. Are you like that with God? Only if you are, Jesus says, may you enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the problem for many of us is that we're just too grown up. Grown up. The older we get and the more we experience in this world, the more jaded most of us become. We become suspicious. We expect people to let us down. When someone does us good, we just assume that there must be a catch. When someone invites us for dinner, we wonder, are they inviting us over because they're about to drop a bomb on us? Are they inviting us over because they're looking for a favor from us? I think like that sometimes. So if you ever invite me, just tell me. We're just inviting you. We don't have a problem. But that's how we think, isn't it? We are prone as adults towards suspicion and toward jadedness, and we project that towards God even when we don't realize we're doing it. We assume that his promises may come with a catch. We assume that maybe things with God aren't all that they seem. Maybe he won't come through after all. And I know we never say that, but our actions often prove that that's what's in our hearts, don't they? We're feeling God out the way suspicious adults do. We're going to ask God for something, but we're going to have a backup plan. We're feeling God out. And perhaps even this morning, someone's sitting here, and you know that that's what you're doing, just in general with life. You're, you're feeling God out, but you've been afraid to actually jump into his arms and really trust him. And you never will jump into his arms, Jesus says, until you become like a child. Until you are able to say, my dad would never let me down. My father would never fail to come through for me. Until you set aside some of your grown-up, sophisticated doubts and suspicion, you'll never jump into your father's arms. You'll never climb into his lap and really trust him. Because no one ever enters a real and meaningful relationship with doubts, do they? You don't enter a relationship meaningfully until you're willing to let your guard down, until you're willing to put your suspicions to the wind, until you're able to really trust someone. So will you trust God with whatever it is in your life right now? If it's that you need to be forgiven of sins and you need to come to him just like the children need to come to him and be saved, will you trust God? Or if there's some difficulty in your life that you're coming up with a backup plan. You're praying about it, but you're going to figure out what you do if God doesn't come through. Will you just trust God? I know lots of people have let you down. In fact, 
perhaps even this sermon has been hard for a few of you because your parents let you down and now we're just rehashing all the things that they should have done and didn't. But let me just ask all of you, can you remember what it was like to be a child? A small child, before you realized how cruel the world could actually be, before you realized that your parents didn't hang the moon, can you remember believing that they did? Believing that they would always be there for you? Can you remember going to bed at night without a question in your mind that when you had a bad dream, mom would be there or dad would be there? Can you remember going to school without a question in your mind that when you came home, all would be well and everyone would be there and they would welcome you with open arms? Can you remember that? You trusted your parents in ways that you have never, ever trusted anyone since then. And it was right and it was good, and it was wholesome. I just ask you, is it possible that it could be like that between you and God? Is it possible that you could just look at him and say, boy, I don't even have any doubts? It is possible if you will believe on the authority of his word that his trustworthiness, unlike the trustworthiness of so many people, perhaps in your life, will never prove to be an illusion. God's not like everyone else, is he? He is trustworthy, ultimately trustworthy. When he promises to accept you as you are, warts and all, he means it. And when he says that forgiveness and restoration and a new life are free gifts that belong to anyone who will place their faith in Jesus, anyone who will come to Jesus, there's no catch. If you made a promise like that to your children or your grandchildren, wouldn't they believe you? If you just said, let me give you this, it's free, wouldn't they believe you? And if so, isn't it high time that you yourself simply begun to take the Heavenly Father at His word? Isn't it time for some of us to come to Him with all of our sins and all of our foibles and all of our hurts and all of our neediness and just to climb into His lap like a child, trusting that as long as I'm with Him, everything will be well. Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me. And the final question this morning is simply this. Are you willing to be one of the children?